millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Hello and welcome to another Mid-Atlantic. Now before I start the show, I'd just like to remind you that Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Now if you don't know, Agora is a network of like-minded, independently owned podcasts. Each month we focus on and promote a specific podcast and this month it's Heather Tysko's The Renaissance History of England. So go over to Agora Podcast Network to check out that or any of its other shows or in Indeed, you can go to a podcatcher of your choice. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. He said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the ocean from the perspective of the other. To do this, I'm ably assisted by Rob, the historian man Monaco in Connecticut, from Mick Wright, the journalist in London, and also we have new man on the block, John Elledge from the New Statesman. Say hello, gentlemen. Hey. Hello, hey. gentlemen. <laughs> I am your host, Roy. Have we meant to drink before this thing? Have I been doing this wrong? Um, I'm your host, Royfield Brown in San Francisco. In a week that has seen a woman calmly live broadcasting the dying moments of her fiancé to the world, we look at the continuing political fallout in the UK after Brexit and the volatile mixture of guns and race in the US. We got pulled over for a busted taillight in the back. And the police just, he's, he's, he's covered. He they killed my boyfriend. He's licensed, he's carried to, he's licensed to carry. He was trying to get out his ID and his wallet out his um, pocket and he let the officer know that he was, re- he had a firearm and he was reaching for his wallet and the officer just shot him in his arm. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. I will. Fuck. He just shot his arm off. We got pulled yeah. over on Larpener. I told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand out. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Oh, my God. Please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. Just keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. 
please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Please, officer, don't tell me that you just did this to him. You shot four bullets into him, sir. He was just getting his license and registration, sir. With the deadly shooting last week of black men by the police in Louisiana and Minnesota, followed by the sniper killings of five police officers in Dallas, Obama had to make the unusual choice to return to the White House late on Sunday. Is the racial divide deepening in the US and what does it say about its relationship with guns? Over to you in Connecticut, Mr. Monaco. Hey, uh, who better to talk about the racial divide in this country than a 33-year-old white guy from Connecticut, right? <laughs> well, you know what? You have skin in the game. You have skin in the game. So, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I do. And, and, I, and I kind of exist in a different kind of atmosphere from wherever it's thing is going on I but, mean, but well, a lot of people it, would say though in the, in the last week that it's the fact that um it's wider white america has begun to realize that there is an issue that maybe the the tide is turning with this kind of subconscious and subliminal racism but anyway i don't put words in your mouth mr monaco <laughs> but, but you're on to something as well with with the, the the subliminal aspects of it that there's a lot that we overlook i, I mean I don't even want to say, you know, with white America, because truthfully, growing up, I was always told by my grandmother that we were not part of white America, especially being Sicilian, that we were frequently not looked upon as white enough. I mean, I remember moving to Connecticut and instantly being mocked for my hair, my dress, the the accent, the the. I, I mean, and you're like, really? I mean, last time I checked, I'm pretty white, but. Truthfully, I, I think that we were, we were as a society becoming more and more on top of the racial differences here and trying to bridge something. But every now and then, and it seems to be getting worse, it's the angriest people with the most guns that are br dividing us further. And it all seems to be stemming from the bigger picture, which I think, least and not to derail it it's the militarization of our police force but that doesn't go to the heart of the fact that um a policeman if he stops an american um of one color or another implicitly has a different response to them um from the outside mr new boy john ellidge over in london how does this seem from a british perspective i mean i've been i've been thinking about this i kind of think there's two different aspects to this one is it seems to be a pretty universal thing that police forces do not like taking responsibility for this stuff there is always this kind of instinctive response where they if they make a mistake they tend to the close ranks and look after their own a little bit so we, we see that a lot in in police scandals here in london like um a guy who got knocked over in a, a pro he wasn't even in the protest march he just had to be near a protest march he got knocked over died of a heart condition and the amount of absolute nonsense that the, the police uh, press team put around about him just to try and put people off noticing they'd effectively just committed manslaughter um so i think that that response is 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 pretty universal in most of the countries i i know um what always strikes me from from the outside looking at the the u.s policing situation though is that everyone's got guns and and so there is a kind of you know deeply embedded history of of uh, 
racial prejudice and 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 assumptions about who someone is based on how they look and and that's that's not a great combination <laughs> so it, so yeah I, I don't feel like I've said anything particularly profound there but it's just it, it's just it never ceases to kind of stun me just like the, the level to which people I mean the, the thing I'm finding really heartbreaking is is the 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 stuff you're seeing on the internet of like you know mothers talking about being terrified of just their, their their kids going out for a drive or whatever and just saying like if you get stopped just keep your hands where they can see them at all times that's just the idea you have to sort of say this as a sort of basic safety message is absolutely insane mm. well it has to be said just just so there's some kind of balance here that my parents gave me that talk when i was about 12 13 as well and um, when I was at college in Worthing, which is an overwhelmingly white town on the south coast of the UK, I was stopped in the space of six weeks. And they've been stopped by the police before this three times in, in, in six weeks. Miss, Mr. Mick Wright, um, we all love America. It's a great, uh, it's a country of great aspiration. Um, how can they find a way through this present morass? <laughs> oh, it hit me with yeah, a big help question. us, Mick. Yep, uh, Mick's yeah, gonna sort it, everyone. Mick, how would you solve the the fundamental uh, <laughs> We're the racial and societal <laughs> fractures of the U.S.? Um, I, oh, I don't know, man. I mean, look, you know, the the election and uh, and, and re-election of a black president hasn't. Uh, uh, really uh, made a huge difference there, and you know the rise of, uh, of at least of Donald Trump's prominence in this election campaign. I don't think is going to help much. Uh, you know the growth of kind of nativist movements across the world is uh, it can't be a good thing for uh, you know, racial racial harmony. But so maybe, uh, no, may- I don't. But maybe something like this and the shooting of those uh, five policemen. It's been marked. For me being over here in, in actually in America that right-wing American media has not wholesalely kind of turned on that shooter in terms of well we couldn't see where this came came from at all and the actions of the Dallas police the next day that there were more protests in Dallas and they gave the protesters water um, and you in fact you have somebody like Newt Gingrich who says there is a problem with the way that the, the police deal with African Americans says to me that there probably is a recognition um, in wider white American society that there is an issue that needs to be addressed. Well, yeah, but there's not going to be any... It sounds great in a soundbite, but the truth is is that all you have to do is just spin it and say, well, yeah, I mean, we can make the police cuddlier and softer and, and a little more gentle, but, well, what's going to happen when there's an actual threat and they don't have their riot gear anymore and their tanks and their, their weapons to, to protect you, the American public? People get very scared very easily, and, and I think that they're they're talking out of both sides at this point. And anybody, especially you know, a Newt Gingrich's ilk, they should be ashamed of themselves for saying anything at this point. No, I don't know, Rob. I think that's a, a little bit harsh. I think if you have somebody like Newt, Newt Gingrich actually saying. If you are black, you need to be wary if you're stopped by the police. And I'm paraphrasing somewhat. That's but that's basically what. And he's said. right. And and DWB is is a real freaking problem in this country. But I, you know, for people like him who were in a position of power that could have actually done something and could still do something, 
they just want the attention. And he wants to be Donald Trump's vice president anyway, so he's going to say whatever. Oh, God, is that, is that really a thing that's going to happen? I've missed yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's he's he's one of the the contestants, which is gross. Do, he's do you know put on the ticket to appeal to the moderates. I mean, what's the... <laughs> oh. <laughs> Gentlemen, I'm going to bring this back onto guns and not the Republican uh, presidential uh, uh, elections. Um, the NRA. What should be the NRA the NRA's position in, in a situation like this? Is it by accident that the NRA has been somewhat stymied in its response because this is a black person? If we're looking at specifically uh, Philandro Castle or Castile, who um, was trying to uphold his Second Amendment rights whilst he was shot in possession of black skin. Mick Wright, over to you. The NRA, the NRA is not out there to advocate for the rights of black people to, to, to bear arms, I don't think. Not realistically. Um, uh, there, there's um, something I just wanted to, to, to come back to around what Rob was saying about the militarization of the police. There's an there's a interesting sort of side part to the story, which is the way that the, the police ended the standoff with uh, Micah Johnson, the, the Dallas gunman, um, who, who shot the police officers is, is is a worrying one for me because they used a they used a police bomb to end that search and I I, I think that was a kind of fundamentally uh, quite a frightening thing in itself is the police deploying their own bombs I find particularly unsettling. No, I, I think that's an astute observation, and I, and I did think that was. Uh... You know, it's somewhat of a, a purely militaristic um, action to take. Um, ending up on this, um, who wants to have the last word? L- l- you know, th- there must be some way out of this. I- I'm sufficiently, I always think the glass is half full and not half empty, but I, I think that the tide has, has kind of turned in America with its treatment, uh, at least the recognition of the treatment of the police uh, uh, with African American males in particular. Uh, but who wants to have the last word? Well, I'm going to tell you who's going to have the last word. Mr. Monaco, over to you as our resident <laughs> Yank. <laughs> I, I mean, look, a statistic that is sometimes cited but re- reacted to with sort of shock and disbelief is this is the safest, most peaceful time in, in human history. And I think that that sets in when you think about the shock and outrage of these shootings. They are outrageous because we all know that this is disgusting and outside of human decency. And it doesn't matter if it's coming from the cops or anybody else. Guns are always going to have a place in this country. That is off the table. The Supreme Court, for whatever, whatever they decided to interpret the Second Amendment as, as poorly written as it is, as a citizen has a right to bear arms, but firearms in particular, it's going to be here. So we need to either think about how can we stop either glorifying the weapon or how can those who are supposed to protect us protect all of us and not just on the color of our skin. Perfect way to end. Good morning, morning. Chief. Can I just read you something that you said to the Hansard Society not that long ago, 2013, you said, I'm going to nail my colours to the mast here. I don't think the UK should leave the EU. I think it would be a disaster for our economy and it would lead to a decade of economic and political uncertainty as a time when the tectonic plates of global success are moving. Why was that Andrea Leadsom so wrong? 
It has been a journey. With Brexit continuing to destabilise the UK, what comes next? Over to you in London, John Elledge. Oh, God, you're still with the big questions here, aren't you? It's like the, the last couple of weeks have been by far the most unpredictable of uh, that I've lived through politically. Like so many major figures in the political scene have resigned. Uh, David Cameron went, Boris Johnson went, Michael Gove, who stabbed Boris Johnson in the back. Uh, not literally, that would have been, but that would have been very much in keeping with the mood. Um, <laughs> fell out of the, 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 Michael Gove fell out of the race very quickly as well. Um, and meanwhile, we've got a leadership challenge in the Labour Party that looks like it's going to kick off this week. Um, Nigel Farage resigned from his uh, position as, as uh, head of U- uh, leader of UKIP, although he's done that several times before, and, and then taken up a new career as leader of UKIP. So it is possible he'll come back, but it is generally thought that this time it's for real. The overwhelming sense at the moment is that we've just made this massive decision as a country. We're going to we're going to leave the European Union. It's going to have a massive economic effect. Uh, we've now got a massive increase in, in the reporting of racially motivated abuse. And the feeling is nobody wants to take responsibility for this. There is just a, a huge leadership vacuum. So there's no, we've got um, the Conservative Party, the ruling Conservative Party is in the middle of uh, a leadership race, which is going to run till September, because obviously there's nothing else we need to be worrying about right now. Um, at the same time, the opposition Labour Party is going to get into a leadership race of its own. Uh, it, it's very unclear like who there is actually running the show at this point. And, and you know, all government business is going to stop except Brexit for probably for several years, because you know, European legislation is so embedded in everything we do in the country. And also it's... There, there is a lack of civil service resources, so they're all going to get diverted onto dealing with the Brexit question. It's just the. So you ask me what's what's going to happen next, and it's, it is completely impossible to predict. The most likely person we're going to get as the next Prime Minister, I think, will be Theresa May, who's previously been Home Secretary. But because everything has been so unpredictable, it, you, you can't rule out the possibility that instead the Conservative Party is going to pick Andrea Leadsom who is a very junior minister who no one, basically no one had heard of two or three months ago, which you can tell from the fact that people on Twitter keep getting her name wrong and calling her Angela Leadsom. But she's she's risen from nowhere on the back of the, the campaign to leave the European Union. And she's funded by the same kind of people um, as the Tea Party were funded by in the States. Um, a couple of interest groups connected with the Koch brothers uh, funding her campaign. So she is very much part of this sort of, sort of international nativist anti-state movement. So that's a bit of a, a, a rambling summary, but to sum up, I'm, I'm just terrified. Right. I should have just said that at the beginning, really. That would have covered a lot of bases, really. John has given us um, somewhat of a doomsday apocalyptic notion of what's going to happen, or... Uh, Throw my hands I thought in the that was air. quite optimistic, actually. That was, <laughs> that, was, that was me being happy about things. All right, Mick, you're, you're always a, a realist in these situations. Um, if we can't look any further than, let's say, six months into the future, tell us what's going to happen in UK policies the next two weeks, because I'll be buggered if I know. <laughs> uh, the next two weeks? Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, we've been having sort of a month's worth of news every day. Uh, in the past few weeks and I think it's it's going to continue I suspect that you know the Labour Party's morass is going to get even worse uh, 
with um, Angela Eagle. Her much uh, delayed challenged properly tomorrow. Um, legal questions around whether Corbyn will actually have to find 51 nominations to get on the ballot, or whether, as he and his dwindling band of supporters suggest, uh, he uh, should automatically be there as the leader. I think you're going to be seeing um, some interesting stuff on the fringes of of, of the UK uh, Gibraltar called for a second Brexit vote today, which I don't think they're going to get. Um, growing problems over in, you know, growing um, unsettled uh, situation over in Northern Ireland, I suspect, uh, as a result of Brexit. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's happy days. In, I, the, in the next two weeks. Yeah, I'm with I'm, I'm with John. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much scared witless over this, I've got to say. Um, with Jeremy Hunt, the health secretary, um, he's kind of one of many MPs who's backing... Um, a second referendum well it's a referendum on exit terms do we actually think that Britain is going to leave the EU now I'm going to come back on to you John before I scoot over to you Rob for uh, an American or worldwide perspective on this I mean it, we, it, it's completely unknowable is the difficulty we don't we're currently in a sort of phony war because we we're not officially starting the process of leaving the I European Union. I think that that analogy is wrong. The phony war, nothing happened. There's loads happening in this. In this. Oh uh, yeah, but I mean, in terms of our negotiations with the EU, we're not. No negotiations are currently going oh, okay. on. Um. So so like, there's a lot of there's a lot of positioning of of, of like you know, literally the day after the vote happened. There were promoted tweets popping up from Paris saying, hey, do you run a major multinational bank? Then why not move it to here? Um, so, you know, there is stuff happening, but it's kind of it, it is this positioning stuff in terms of formal negotiations. Literally nothing is happening. Nothing will happen until we activate Article 50, uh, which which uh, gives us two years to negotiate terms. And if we don't negotiate a deal within that time, we just we go back to being any other country and we're totally out of the single market. Obviously, no one in the British government much likes that idea, so they're refusing to activate Article 50 until they've got some sense of where things are going. But the European, the other European governments, they don't want to start negotiating until Article 50 has happened. They're kind of ignoring the situation too. So I suspect that we're going to be stuck in this stalemate for, for some time because it's in no one's interest to, to move things forwards, particularly given there are elections in both Germany and France next year. Um, so it's it's entirely plausible that Article 50 just kind of hangs over British politics for, for quite some time yet. Um, and you know, the longer it does, I think the more chance there is of something happening, which could totally change the terms of the debate. Like at the moment, there are there are signs that it's all been uh, it's been a terrible idea. So that sterling has fallen to its lowest level in in decades. Uh, and, um, and don't and, I know it being over here in San Francisco? But but go on. Yeah, um, but and and you know there's loads of stuff happening like property uh, London property funds are sort of locking up the money to stop people from taking all the money. And there's basically trying to stop a run on those funds. Um, but it's not really filtering through to the real economy yet. So over the next couple of months, we might start to see people complaining about how how their holiday was more expensive than they're expecting, or we might start to see inflation creeping up. Um, 
or we might start to see you know multinationals seriously start moving jobs out of England if any of those things happen to any great extent it might actually change popular opinion towards you whether this has been a good idea or not um, but, John, but at the moment I'm aware John, this is all John, John, thinking for someone who never to vote leave in the first place don't you think that popular opinion has, has already changed or at least it's moved in, in the UK I'm going to put this question over to you Mick but Rob I haven't forgotten you that's okay I'm kind of just the observer in this Popular opinion has moved. It has moved in what respect? In in favour of this has been a dreadful mistake. That some twelve percent of people, at least twelve percent of people who voted to leave, would actually, if the vote was held again today, would actually vote to remain. Well, yeah, I think I think it probably started to move the morning after when uh, you know Nigel Farage was asked. So, do we get an extra three hundred and fifty million? Um, a week for the NHS, okay, and he said, "Well, no, and we never said that." And you know, leavers started to say, uh, you know, even people like um, Daniel Hannan, who, who for years has been, you know, vociferous voices for leave, saying, "Well, you know, we could um, be part of the, you know, um, economic area, and yes, there'd still be free movement of labour." You know, it, it's become clear that the the leave case was even more. Uh, fragile, flawed, and based on on, on claims that uh, didn't didn't uh, pass the sniff test. So yeah, I, th- I think people have realised that. I think a lot. I think I, a lot I of these voters didn't think it would happen. I, I mean, I, I I really want to believe they have because I'm I'm this, I, I, I'm I feel very strongly this was a stupid idea. We should stand the European Union. I've been looking for evidence in the polling that other people are realising this, and there hasn't really been any. I think um, a lot of people who were a little bit remain and now sort of fervently sort of like this was a travel idea we should stay. So it feels like there's kind of more passion around. But if you look at the raw numbers, um, I just don't see any evidence that people are changing their minds about this and the kind of numbers that would would mean a different result. Mr. Monaco, in Connecticut, you're somewhat of an observer, but an interested one. What has this done to your perception of the UK? The last time we recorded I mean, it was like two weeks ago and and it was around we're getting close to july 4th and i'm and i'm watching nigel farage so you know now this is independence day for britain and like we're sitting here and burgers and hot dogs and we're like what the hell are you talking about man like seriously are people gonna believe this and it was just watching th- this this circus and then you know we're hearing all the the promises that are going to be broken and then watching them all start to resign it's like can the government be trusted at at a point that it's sort of like what good is the word of these people now so they're not going to do a second vote that's this is done you made your bet you gotta line it now but it's like what goes forward though how can we trust or global markets or or any other country that wants to do business with their with the british government how can we trust that as soon as things go one way that they're not going to just well it's it's time you know to go our separate ways we've been successful you've been successful but we don't need to do this anymore we'll just kind of separate i'll tell you one thing that surprised me uh, looking at american media is how much they've mentioned brexit like for the first week it absolutely dominate american uh, media and and the chattering classes but also they made a a link between um the brexit vote and trumpism um do you see 
direct parallels and links. And do you think that uh, the fact that Britain has voted to leave the EU, whether it does or not, eventually uh, will have any kind of effect on uh, people who might vote Republican or, let's say, who are pro-Trump come the election in November? No, but that's only because we have really bad news ADD in this country. I mean, we're going to... We'll remember, you know, ah, Brexit. That was a word. That was a catchy word. But they're not going to remember the lessons of it, though. Whether or not there's a, you know, a correlation here, I think that I, I don't know if it was Mick or John who said, you know, the nativist movements. There is that sort of feeling of, yeah, there is something sort of, you know, oh, to get back to a simpler time where we were on our own, whatever the hell that means. Yeah, sure, there's something about that. But that's not the way the world is in 2016. So whether or not people, you know, that this is a, the first step in, in a road that leads to a bizarre alternate future, I, I, don't, I don't know rightly. But I think that people do need to realize that the lessons over there, you can't take it back. And where, over here, for example, you can't take it back for another four years. Mm-hmm. Um, gentlemen, um, what were the reasons for this vote? Was it, was it anti-EU, was it anti-austerity, or was it anti-immigration? Mick Wright, over to you. Um, I don't know, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, when you, um, look at areas in the North where people have feel, uh, that they, uh, have been ignored by, Westminster and mainstream politics. There's a lot of that as well. There's a there's a generalised sense that uh, Europe wasn't doing much for them. I mean, it's interesting, particularly when you look at areas, uh, you know, Cornwall in, in Cornwall, Wales, other places. They've got huge amounts of European investment and still voted against it. it there's there's a whole range of things. It's very difficult as well as someone who voted Remain to 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 sort of. Um, to uh, get into that mindset in some ways and also um, you know my my job and my livelihood hasn't necessarily been affected by uh, immigration and that and the you know the, the the areas of the country I've lived in haven't been so um, I suppose you know uh, being a representative of the metropolitan elite I probably wouldn't understand what you've, you've lived in several EU countries haven't you Mick I mean you've, you've genuinely taken advantage of free movement well, I live in Dublin, yeah, certainly, and that's um, threat of losing that is, was certainly one reason that I uh, that I voted to, to, to stay in, yeah. So we have... Yeah, so, go on, go on, John. I can't remember what I was going to say now. It <laughs> so, <laughs> wasn't that important. So um, just to kind of end up on this, trying to look at where we are with contemporary British politics, you have the Labour Party potentially splitting into two we have UKIP, which isn't writing itself into um, history just yet, at least until Article 50 has not only been invoked, but actually um, has been enacted. Um, are we looking at a realignment of British politics? Are we looking at maybe a centrist coalition of the vast majority of parliamentarians, uh, informally or formally, who are pro-Remain? that will contest in some way, shape or form the next election and actually will see out Brexit. Mr John Elledge, over to you. 
I think it is actually plausible for the first time in living memory, really. Uh, there was a report in, in The Observer on Sunday um, saying that talks were already going on between quite senior people in the Labour and Tory parties from the Remain side. And, you know, it's, the, it's sort of the, the centrist bits of both parties. It's not sort of radical socialists lining up with, with, with country squires or anything. Um, but people who are just who are in the middle are having conversations about what they might do if if Labour can't dislodge Jeremy Corbyn and the Tories pick Andrea Leadsom, at which point you have the two main parties of government both ruled by people who are basically seen as extremists in one way or another. Um, the difficulty you've got, though, is that our, our electoral system is based on, on first-past-the-post, and it's actually very difficult for new parties to emerge. Um, so it's there is there is a massive inbuilt advantage um, to being an established brand name effectively because it's no good getting a load of votes all over the country if you don't get them consistently in certain geographical areas in if you don't get them in more votes in one constituency than any other party you're not going to win any MPs. Oh, so Mr. Mr. McWright, you're going to have the last word on this. Are we okay. looking at Andrew Leadsom leading the Conservative Party and Jeremy Corbyn hobbling through until an election is called? Um, <laughs> you see, yeah, no, I mean, if you look back to the election of Corbyn, before he was elected and before he started to get, get momentum, the troll in the year, organization uh, nobody was predicting that everybody thought he was just going to be you know a fringe candidate as uh, as john mcdonald had been in previous uh, labor elections and I, I i wouldn't want to make a prediction that, that ledson wouldn't get it because i mean there is you know 160,000 tory voters they're predominantly old and white and uh, you know difficult to say which one they'll pick i mean it, it seems more likely that theresa may would win just on the sheer weight of experience Tory party wants to throw itself into chaos like the like Labour have done. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Definitely vote for Leds and that'd be the way to go. With Portugal just beating the host France 1-0 in the Euro Championships, I think, gentlemen, it's time we reflect on how beautiful the beautiful game is. Mr. Rob Monaco over there in Connecticut, I know you're a big fan of soccer ball, as you uh, Yanks call it. Isn't Uh, football just the most beautiful sport in the world? Um, You know, the last World Cup, I I started to get more into it. And I understood that there's a certain... um, thrill to the 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 low scoring that i had oft mocked uh as sort of like really one zero that's your thrilling game that's riveting um but there is something exciting about that we're sort of like yes all it takes is is one goal and but it took a while to get there and yeah and i will say though that i do not watch soccer uh in english I watch it on um, Univision or, or Telemundo. I don't understand most of what they're saying, but there's something about the Spanish announcers. My God, it's exciting. That's that's. It truly is. You have to watch it in Spanish to really just feel this level of exhilaration. That, I mean, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm so excited. I can't. I can't contain it. This is it goal? Goal! Golasso! Oh yeah, uh, John. I know you being um, somebody who lives in the in the what the East End of London. But I just presume. Well, I know that you're obviously a West Ham fan. You must be excited about West Ham moving to the Olympic Stadium next season. I'm kind of genetically a West Ham fan. Like I kind of I, I occasionally check to see which league they're playing in this year because uh, they, they they've swapped around quite a lot. Can you tell me what colours um, they're playing? Uh, claret and blue. I'm not. Oh. That, I'm not that bad. Okay. All right. I can pick them out of a lineup. No, but I just. I, I'm, I'm not manager? making any claim. I'm not making. Who's I, the I manager? Guess. Steve McLaren was England manager. Uh, West Ham. We're talking about here. I know, but I'm. I'm Steve saying McLaren I don't. McLaren was the manager before last. So who's just quit then? Roy Hodgson. Right. Okay. I mean, you kind Nick, of highlight Nick, the gap. Him out. He obviously here, doesn't know anything about the beautiful sport, Nick. Um, um, well, you know, I'm, bat, right? <laughs> I fall somewhere in between you and John, though, on this. To be honest with you, because I was born, I was born in Norwich. So to be a Norwich City supporter is it would be to, you know, is is to is to live a, a depressing life. So I mean, I the notion. I think the the thing that 
has been beautiful in the European Championships is was the sense that they they expanded the number of teams playing, and it was it was great to see you know small nations with teams that actually uh, played as teams and had a, had a had a communal spirit like Wales and Iceland get much further in the competition than people expected. And Rob, if you want to hear a great commentator, look up. There's an Iceland commentator going absolutely <laughs> ballistic when they beat England, which is fantastic. And I think I think. Uh, I think the beauty in sport can be results which are unexpected. The things that aren't beautiful are people like, you know, massively well-paid player, paid players like Ronaldo, you know, having hissy fits and, 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 and tantrums when things don't go their way. And, uh, you know, there's a sense that, you know, players falling over when they're barely touched and stuff like that. The notion of football as a beautiful game, I'm, I'm not really that sold on it. Compare it to something, I don't know, compare it even to something like basketball and you, you see stuff, you see movement and poise and grace uh, happening in ways that don't happen in football that often. So, you know, the beautiful game uh, is, uh, yeah, it's perhaps, uh, you know, cliche that's fallen apart somewhat. It's interesting you make that link to basketball because the last two months that I've been in the Bay Area, the Golden State Warriors have been in the playoff finals uh, against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I've always derided basketball as a game and actually uh, not a sport. And uh, there were just too many baskets and I just couldn't understand the pattern of play. But it has to be said that all the things that I say about football, that it's at, at, at its best, it's rooted in a sense of place. So you, let's say you go to Newcastle and everybody's working, wearing black and white stripes, whether it's Norwich and it's uh, yellow and green, you get that over here. So there's a real sense of this is the area's team. And then um, if you get somebody to sit you down and, so you act, and can actually explain the patterns of play to you, Basketball is an incredibly beautiful thing, but there's something about it only having five men on the court at any one t- at any one time that it doesn't feel truly like a team game. It's a squad game um, in a way that kind of football is. And my other thing is about basketball, which is a game which I now like and appreciate. You have to be a freak of nature to play it. You need to be seven foot tall. Uh, Rob, isn't it true that all American sports are just for freaks? Uh, yes, I, w- I would agree with that. Um, <laughs> as someone who um, is seven foot tall and, and excelled at all sports whatsoever, um, uh, scholarships, uh, you name it, um, I, I do consider myself a freak of nature. Right. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to end. <laughs> all right, gentlemen, on that profound note, with Rob being um, a freak uh, of nature, uh, sporting, physical, and intellectually, we'll go away to yes. our takeaways of the week. Takeaways of the week time, gentlemen. I'm going to start over with you, uh, Mr. John Elledge of the New Statesman. Tell us one thing which has kind of arrested your attention in the last seven days. Uh, I'm going to go back to the beginning of the the show. I found it very interesting seeing uh, a lot of people, at least people claiming to be NRA members online, complaining that they haven't said a word about Philando Castile, um, which makes me wonder if people are, whether people are actually sort of noticing that the NRA isn't just about, you know, how great it is to own a gun and is actually representing a particular brand of of middle-aged white nativism. I think I'd agree with that as well. Mr. McWright, what's been your takeaway the last seven days? Um, I've not been able to play it yet because it's not on the UK app store, although some people are doing some weird things with settings to get it. But I'm just fascinated by, um, by 
what's going on with Pokemon Go and the way that it is causing all sorts of weird news stories with like a police station having to put up a sign saying you don't have to come in here to get this particular Pokemon, just stand outside and collect it. Uh, <laughs> a woman stumbling upon a dead body while uh, rampaging around trying to find uh, a particular Pokemon she was trying to collect. The, the, the use of like augmented reality has been a big sort of um, buzzword in uh, in um, you know tech circles for years and years and years and and it's been there's been interesting experiments but it's amazing to see this huge mass market game you know which crosses generations causing people to sort of go out into the world and and, and maybe it shows potential for for more future computer games to to make us more active though of course this is also leading to people just sort of going into areas they shouldn't be so uh, you gotta weigh that up so from pokemon go um, Mr. Rob Monaco in Connecticut, what's been your takeaway? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm normally the guy who, who's talking about the video games, but uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I'll, I'll mention that I finally got around to watching uh, all parts of ESPN's documentary on O.J. Simpson um, and that whole business. Uh, it was very long, but it was really, really good. Uh, and if people want to look at something that's... Um, ties in with with sort of all of the uh the, the racial uh, stuff going on in this country especially um holy moly um that was that was crazy um but an excellent I, documentary i've really. only done uh the first episode but i found that absolutely fascinating and yeah it talks about the 1968 olympics when people like muhammad ali and then various kind of black sportsmen were saying we shouldn't send athletes to go and they wanted oj simpson to be part of that as well didn't they you know as a problem yes yes and he said nope i'm nope. i i'm not black i'm oj or, or worse yes. of that effect you know so, really really fascinating it just mind-blowingly like wow i, I can't mm. believe it but yeah that no, was a great bit of television great bit of television um and kind of on, on a similar note um i've been watching house of lies this week House of Lies, um, I, I didn't even know it existed, but there's five seasons of this. It stars Don Cheadle as a management consultant who basically is somewhat kind of amoral. And uh, I'm halfway through the second season, so I've still got another, another three to go after this. And already he's changing from this, I will just do anything to get the deal. Um, I will just tell anybody what they want to hear so they'll sign on the dotted line. Um, is changing from that person to somebody who realizes that um, they do have a certain kind of position in society that they are that they are black is a single parent as well etc and um, but but it's a great bit of kind of dramedy so um, it, you can it, you can watch it and it's straight drama but there are lots of kind of comedic moments in it it's very good House of Lies it's a Showtime show um, I recommend you go and watch it. So we're just going to um, end up, guys, and um, this has all been good. Uh, but Mr. John Ellidge, over to you over in, in London. If anybody wants to catch up with you on social media, how can they do that? My name on Twitter is quite originally John Ellidge, which is J-O-N-N-E-L-L-E-D-G-E, and I can't go more than about three minutes without checking my tweets, so I'm reasonably accessible there. How about you in Connecticut, Mr. Rob Monaco? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter, which is at Podcast History, and they can listen to my podcast, which is not very originally named the podcast history of our world i, I listened to it this week oh, oh thank it was, you wasn't bad wasn't bad well welcome back to the world of podcasting oh well thank you so much right. it's great to be back good good 
learnt loads about the meaning of the word uh, Tarquin and, and all sorts. But anyway, um, <laughs> Mr. McWright, how about you? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm at Broken Bottle Boy on Twitter. That's the place to get me. Fantastic. And you can catch up with us on Twitter, where we are Mid Atlantic Show. We are also on Facebook, where, funny enough, if you type in Mid Atlantic Show, you'll also find our page there. The website is midatlanticshow.com. My name is Royfield Brown. You can find me on Twitter, where I'm at Royfield, but R O I F I E L D. We'll see you all again in two weeks' time. <laughs>